a lot of them are seizing the narrative back and saying domestic work is nothing to be ashamed of, right? And in, in doing so, they kind of put up a middle finger against like respectability politics that we see in the Filipino diaspora. Welcome to Perspectives, a Canadian journal of political economy and social democracy. I'm Clement Nokos, editor of Perspectives Journal and director of policy and engagement at the Broadband Institute. Today I'll be speaking with Broadband Institute Policy Fellow Ethel Tonguhan, Canada Research Chair in Canadian Migration Policy, Impacts and Activism, and Professor of Politics at York University. Her new book, released late this summer, is called Care Activism, Migrant Domestic Workers, Movement Building, and Communities of Care, published by University of Illinois Press. Care Activism is about workers' empowerment, and not in the traditional sense that most would think of through things like a labor union. Care activism challenges the stereotype of a downtrodden migrant caregiver by showing that care workers have distinct ways of caring for themselves, for each other, and for the larger transnational imagined community of care workers and their families. Professor Tunguhan illuminates how the goals and desires of migrant care worker activists goes beyond political considerations like policy changes and overturning power structures. From the militant activist marches in protest of policy change to beauty pageants that challenge stereotypes with unique Filipino cultural camp and humor while emboldening a sense of community to the use of the Catholic Church as an organizing tool and value-informing institution. Care activism is a very rare look into an otherwise hidden part of the Canadian working class. Professor Ethel Tunguhan, thank you for joining me for this dialogue on the Perspectives Journal podcast. Thank you so much for having me. For a lot of our listeners who may not be familiar with the causes behind why the overwhelming majority of migrant care workers in Canada and also around the world are women from the Philippines, could you speak more to the history and public policies that have induced this racial and gender dynamic in this segment of the working class? I know it's a really longer story, but what precisely caused this wave of migrant care work beginning in the 1970s? As I detail in my book, Care Activism, uh, one of the pull factors uh, that has led a lot of migrant women, particularly from global South countries like the Philippines and prior to that, uh, Caribbean countries, is that Canada has always had programs devoted to recruiting uh, migrant care workers from abroad. We have had several iterations of what we now call the caregiver program. And I think what's important to note is that Canada hasn't really prioritize the provision of care work for Canadian families. And so a lot of Canadian families have felt that they've had to look at kind of privatized care options, right? Uh, for listeners who have children or who even have elderly parents, we all know how hard it is to find the care that we need that's, you know, that also is in keeping with our schedules, our work schedules, right? So that's one kind of factor. But it, I think it's also important to remember that uh, sending states, migrant sending states like the Philippines have developed infrastructure to facilitate the exodus of its citizens abroad. This is what uh, sociologist Robin Rodriguez calls the labor brokerage state, where a lot of countries develop government infrastructure designed to make sure that they can market their nationals to go abroad. And the Philippines is seen as one of the prime examples of labor brokerage. The Philippines has different government agencies dedicated towards making sure that uh, migrant workers, Filipino migrant workers are sent abroad. In fact, Filipino migrant workers are oftentimes seen as kind of 
the ideal migrant worker, right? That's why you see a lot of migrant domestic workers who are from the Philippines and Canada. So it's a combination of Canadian policy, but also Philippine policy as well. In getting to care activism, the book highlights the labor struggles and the ways that care workers and that activism engage in those struggles. But before we get more into it, who are these care activists that you highlight in your book? A lot of the care activists that I talk about in care activism, my book, are women who have been part of the labor diaspora, the Philippine labor diaspora, and also the Caribbean labor diaspora. And uh, they have been through discussions with their families, they've decided, you know, we don't really have a lot of good economic opportunities in our home countries. And so a lot of them have seized the opportunity to go abroad. A lot of them have professional credentials, a lot are doctors, a lot are nurses, a lot are teachers. But because of economic stagnation in, in their home countries have opted to just go abroad, right? Uh, upon going abroad, they recognize that labor conditions aren't ideal, but they also realize that they need to find what sociologist Valerie Francisco Chavez called communities of care to provide support for each other in ways that migrant sending states and migrant receiving states, and in fact, other organizations such as labor unions cannot and will not, right? Like, so they needed to find these kind of organizations to, to provide each other with support. So these are the care workers, the care worker activists who I talk about. A lot of them came through the foreign domestics movement in Canada, which later became known as the Living Caregiver Program and is currently known as the Caregiver program. So this is a program where uh, migrant care workers, I mean, some elements of it have shifted, but they basically have to complete, you know, a, a live-in contract under the LCP and the FDM, a two-year live-in contract where their employers have a say when it comes to their immigration and employment status in Canada. And only after they've completed this contract can they then apply for Canadian permanent residency for themselves and their families. So they become kind of captive laborers, right? So these are the women who, despite not having Canadian citizenship, I argue, have been able to carve out these organizations to support each other. So they come together considering their, their struggles together as a community. And throughout the book, you invoke historian Benedict Anderson's thesis of imagined communities to talk about migrant care worker activist communities that form. But to some, you know, this might feel a little bit confusing uh, with the theory of nationalism being applied to smaller communities because, you know, this nationalism refers to the creation of nation states. Uh, but I do also think that this is appropriate given the collective consciousness that you chronicle that develops among migrant care workers facing these similar circumstances in far-flung places as Canada, United Arab Emirates, and Hong Kong. Could you elaborate on what you mean by imagined community of migrant care workers? I think one thing I wanted to emphasize in the book is that a lot of the migrant care workers aren't only thinking about representing themselves and their families' needs, but they're also thinking about the larger community of migrant care workers, not necessarily even people they know, but migrant care workers as a whole. And I think, you know, in terms of kind of you know, concretizing what I mean by this. In 1992, in Singapore, uh, there was a domestic worker named Flor Contemplation, who a lot of activists feel was wrongly treated by the Singaporean state. They feel that she was wrongly sentenced to death in Singapore. In the aftermath or during this case, a lot of migrant workers, a lot of migrant domestic workers developed this political awareness that they actually aren't being represented by the state. 
right? This is what catalyzed the formation of kind of migrant worker identity. Even if they didn't necessarily know for Cantablachan, a lot of people felt, a lot of migrant domestic workers felt that they could understand Floor's situation, right? And so in invoking kind of the notion of imagined community, what I hope to say, and what I hope to kind of illustrate through different examples is that, you know, you may not necessarily know all of the different migrant domestic workers out there, but you feel a sense of solidarity. You feel a sense of having borne witness to each other's struggles because you yourself were a migrant domestic worker. And so I think when you look at kind of the larger inspiration uh, of migrant domestic worker activism, a lot of them actually, you know, refer to the lineage of previous generations of migrant domestic worker activists who they don't know themselves, but whose activism inspired them. And a lot of them then say, they continue being active because they want to make sure that future generations of micro-domestic workers don't have to go through what they went through. So there's kind of these intergenerational lineage here as well. And so that's what I was trying to do in, you know, using Anderson's term, imagine community. And with that as well, there's also like grassroots notions of nationalism in some communities, right? And so I think it's really cool to see how some organizations kind of take back what Philippine nationalism means away from the state, right? And I think, you know, looking at these grassroots organization-led notions of nationalism, I think in some ways is very inspiring because then you can see other ways of understanding what nationalism can look like as well, especially from the perspectives of migrant workers. I like to think of imagined communities sometimes as just like a rephrased way of talking about social solidarity. You know, there's that temporal dimension, as you said, between generations of migrant care workers, references in what you chronicle to folks wearing things like the Philippine flag or the, the Canadian flag in the context of uh, what their activities look like sometimes in Canada. But then you can kind of see this represented also, the, the, uh, some of the solidarity, some of this particular nationalism, almost in the gendered quirks or the cultural quirks of the gender dynamics of migrant care work, you know, with a lot of folks in this community coming from uh, the Philippines, you have events and, and community building that takes place with layers of Catholic conservative values in that culture, as well as you know instances of American colonialism, all on top of pre-colonial social dynamics. And I think that's just another discussion on the history of the Philippines and, and, and how the cultural influences play out uh, mm -hmm. in the diaspora society. But you know, in particular, this also is juxtaposed alongside gender and sexual diversity in the community and all of the expression being played out in the novel form that you highlight of everyday care activism. A good chunk of a chapter dedicated to your attendance of beauty pageants of migrant care workers. And, you know, beauty pageants you think of as like this very Americanized thing that's somewhat imposed on young women to highlight what normative beauty standards and, and cultural standards ought to look like, you know, normally with the expression of conservative Christian values. But you, you kind of demonstrate here it's not always about that. And it belies some of the, the, the stereotypes of migrant care workers. First off, why are beauty pageants a part of the culture of migrant care workers? And how are these nominally patriarchal events meant to be empowering for them? 
Yeah, see, you know, Clement, I think I'm going to disagree a little bit on that. I don't really understand why, you know, you're calling it a patriarchal construct when beauty pageants themselves, as a lot of queer theorists have talked about, can be sites of visibility and sites of empowerment too. And I think when you look at that particular chapter, when I talk about beauty pageants, it looks at different forms of everyday care activism. And I'll, I will say for the listeners, you know, this is my favorite chapter and it, it wasn't as dominant in the dissertation, which led uh, a little bit to the book, right? Because initially I was only focused on looking at how domestic worker organizations uh, helped helped craft policies in support of domestic workers. And one running thread through the book is that every single policy improvement that we witness in Canada with respect to care workers were at the behest of care workers themselves, right? So they are not oppressed, and I'm saying this with, with quotation marks, third world women, that they have a lot of agency there as well. But I realized when writing the book, not the dissertation, but the book, that I'm missing a large part of the narrative, right? Which is that Migrant domestic workers aren't only active because they seek policy and structural change, but also because they need to be there for each other in the everyday. And the beauty pageant excerpt looks at how migrant domestic workers deliberately use these spaces to show that, you know, they are multifaceted human beings, right? The domestic work need not only be a site of cleaning and cooking and things like that, but they themselves are also or can also be beauty pageant contestants, right? And certainly there's like cultural roots uh, when it comes to a love for beauty pageants. A lot of other Filipino scholars have talked about that, right? But I think, you know, in looking at some of these beauty pageants, what's really interesting is that, first of all, there's different ideological imperatives behind different beauty pageants. Some are more progressive, some aren't aren't really that progressive, but I think they're savvy in the way that they actually force Canadians to think about domestic workers differently. And also when you look at the connections, uh, some of these pageants hold with Canadian policymakers, and, you know, these policymakers attend these beauty pageants, probably because they want to make sure that they can get more votes. But in attending these beauty pageants, they then get lobbied by care workers to improve policy. So in some senses, this is also like a savvy way to insert themselves in the policy process. So I think, you know, also echoing queer theorists, like it's a lot of fun going to these beauty pageants, right? A lot of women who I've observed over the years being part of them see themselves as being part of a community. Most of these beauty pageants are also devoted towards promoting a certain cause, right? They donate the proceeds to different relief causes back in the Philippines. So yeah, I don't know. I don't necessarily think beauty pageants are, you know, a firm kind of I don't know, masculinist, like colonialist gazes. I think it depends on the pageant. You can go to a beauty pageant and you can see how fun it is, right? No, I've, no for me, it's not so much that, you know, it's such a contradiction. It, it, it really does make sense when you look at these cultural quirks and you see the utility that they can bring for other people. Nominally, in like the Americanized sense, this is what maybe Western audiences might see as something detrimental to what migrant workers are trying to portray. But for for migrant workers, this is a celebration. And so uh, I, I totally <laughs> I totally see where the pushback on, you know, thinking that these are nominally patriarchal events, because I think in in the forms of camp and the forms of expression that marginalized communities often, you know, use these sorts of structures to express themselves and, and, and get their points across. I think that lends a lot of food for thought for a lot of people from outside the community in order to build that solidarity questioning, you know, why this is.
And I think one thing I also have to emphasize is there's a lot of like internal class politics within diaspora communities, right? Especially if you look at kind of different histories of migration with dovetail with different policies the Canadian state sets. So we all know that it was quote unquote easier to come beforehand. And now if you want to immigrate, there's just way too many requirements, right? And I think one powerful thing these caregiver beauty pageants do is they make visible domestic work. And I think you know, I I think there's been some pushback from some community members who look at these beauty pageants because they look down on domestic workers, right? They say, listen, you know, what's going to be next? I, I saw this at a Facebook message board. Are they going to have like a Mr. Custodian beauty pageant? And I'm like, no, these women, a lot of them uh, have become like my aunties, my titas, my ates, right? A lot of them are seizing the narrative back and saying domestic work is nothing to be ashamed of, right? And in doing so, they kind of put up a middle finger against like respectability politics that we see in the Filipino diaspora. No, exactly that. You highlight also how it's, you know, meant to dispel the stereotype of this third world woman who's downtrodden, who's, who's helpless. And it is so empowering as to give them the agency to express, well, no, I, I do have the economic, the social power in order to be portrayed in a positive light. But I, I also want to point out to, to listeners who aren't familiar that, you know, this parent contradiction in terms of Western values, why women from this particular class, from this particular type of work are engaging in things like beauty pageants. I think it's a very fascinating study. Maybe you can kind of put it in the show notes. There have been Filipino scholars who've written about beauty pageants. So, you know, I think maybe your listeners who want to learn more can read more about kind of this lineage of beauty pageants in the Philippines. And speaking of other books, another uh, one that I've just read, If We Burn, is a new book by journalist Vincent Bevins that takes a, uh, talks about the failure of many mass protest movements over the past decade globally and the problems of organizing without structure. But as you highlight in Care Activism, many of these structures come in the form of different activist groups. And it would appear that the ones that delivered sometimes the most movements on care worker empowerment by policymakers were those that had spokespeople and leadership, though at times that leadership didn't come from migrant workers themselves. Do you think that this structured organizing coming from leadership among the workers themselves, or do they need, you know, these outside interlocutors? Like, do you think one of these is maybe a more effective approach to making change to empower migrant workers? Is there room for them in the context of this also broader mass movement for worker empowerment? Do they are they too focused on things like migrant care work? You know, in some organizations, they do highlight the interconnectedness of struggle in their own movement compared to other more global, bigger picture struggles. Do you think that is also sometimes detrimental to empowerment of migrant care workers themselves? Or should that actually be something that ought to be pursued by by these movements? A lot of the organizations that I feature in the book have different conceptualizations of the role of non-care workers in their movements. All of them are united, though, in ensuring that migrant care workers are in leadership roles. I do think that if you look at the chapter where I look at Geneva, you know, ILO, uh, they have Convention 189, which is a convention looking at domestic work. If you kind of look at that chapter, what's interesting is that migrant domestic workers were the ones who were pushing the ILO to do that, but they 
can't obviously be represented in the International Labor Congress, right? Because they're not members of states, they're not employers, and the workers groups tend to be represented by labor unions, which tend to have citizens, right? But they were able to kind of get allies, right? Form these coalitions who then transmitted their message into the larger ILO body. Eileen Boris, Jennifer Fish, and Adele Blackett have all kind of written books looking at how domestic workers were the ones who used these coalitions with policymakers, with ILO officials, with different states to make sure that their needs were met through the convention, right? So I think that's one answer to your question. And I think it depends also on the movement that you're talking about, right? Certainly you have like left-wing, working-class, anti-imperialist, pro-democracy movements that, you know, are part of larger consortiums like the International League for People's Struggles, who do see the interconnections with different workers, right? Who do see that the situation of migrant domestic workers are similar to the experiences, say, of seasonal agricultural workers, who see that the problems of the global working class merit solidarity. So I think it's important to kind of look at these coalitions and the role they play in furthering domestic workers' concerns. Certainly, you know, a lot of the policy successes in Canada were achieved because other movements bought in, right? It's not just domestic workers in isolation. But one thing I did want to stress in the book is that, you know, it's not like these movements suddenly decided to be concerned about domestic workers' issues. The domestic workers themselves had to kind of be savvy in making other people care enough about the issue to get involved in their cause. That's quite right. And I mean, you also note very briefly the absence, for instance, of the participation of migrant care work activists in things like the Hong Kong umbrella revolutions. You don't go into detail, but my kind of understanding of the di- the class and, and, and dynamics of those sorts of protests that did affect the daily lives of of, of migrant care workers in Hong Kong, for instance, uh, that like those were not very much in alignment. And so it is something that you think about what are the movements that migrant care work activists are attaching themselves to. It is movements and causes that empower the working class more broadly to build that solidarity as as they already do temporally with migrant care workers of the past and other workers in similar fields and in similar struggles as well. So lastly, is care activism making a call to action? You know, how should people get involved in care workers and migrant justice organizing? It really does appear to be taken up by the migrant care workers themselves. They build these solidarities with other groups, but they themselves are almost in this struggle pretty much on their own from what it seems to me. How should this struggle also be taken up by others who you know don't come from this particular place don't come from this particular class how should those outside of migrant care work come and build solidarity with these workers to strengthen the movement there are a lot of campaigns where migrant care workers seek the support of non-care workers i think you know you've got the migrant workers alliance for change they have different campaigns in support of regularization you've got migrant canada's campaign uh seeking to regularize and give status to migrant workers not just migrant care workers so there are multiple ways for non-care workers to get involved i think actually it's essential for people who aren't care workers to be involved because quite frankly having spoken to a few politicians one thing they say is that even though their hearts belong 
I mean, this is what they say. I don't know. I don't know if it's true or not, but they say even though they, their hearts bleed for migrant domestic workers, their ability to really do much is limited because migrant domestic workers, if they don't have citizenship, don't vote. And so, you know, they don't have as much pull when it comes to the political system. And I, I kind of, I'm like, hmm, I don't know. I, I'm not trying to necessarily buy that. But that being said, if Canadian citizens themselves, voters, align themselves with migrant domestic workers and say to, I don't know, to, to their MP, listen, it would be an all of our collective interest to give status to all migrant domestic workers upon arrival. This will help us meet our caring needs. This will make labor standards higher. This will show that we prioritize domestic work and see it as real work. It's a win-win for everyone involved. I think that will have more traction for sure. Professor Tungohan, thank you for joining me for this discussion for Perspectives Journal. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> that was Professor Ethel Tungohan, Broadbent Policy Fellow, York University professor and Canada Research Chair in Canadian Migration Policy, Impacts, and Activism. You can read an excerpt of Care Activism at perspectivesjournal.ca and find it available now from University of Illinois Press. And if you like this interview, share and subscribe to Perspectives, a journal of Canadian political economy and social democracy on all major podcast platforms, as well as Press Progress's Sources podcast that digs deeper into the news stories you won't find in the major papers. You can read more in Perspectives Journal, a publication of the Broadbent Institute, by visiting perspectivesjournal.ca.